There's something awe-inspiring about the unity, the peak athleticism, the drama, and the glory of the Olympic Games. It's where we see our greatest athletes, after years of effort, sweat, training, and struggle, vie for the chance to stand on a podium and be declared the best in the world at what they do. It's a tradition that goes back thousands of years, though there is a large chunk of time between 393 CE, when Christian Roman Emperor Theodosius abolished the Olympic Games as an attempt to stamp out paganism, and 1896, when the Games were revivified. The modern Games are vastly different than the ancient Games, something we'll get into in a bit with detail, because y'all know I like an ancient history preamble. But the spirit and grit of competition remains the same. We think of the Games as an inspiring display of human endurance that has ignited the aspirations of young athletes for generations. And it is. But there was a time when it wasn't. Specifically in St. Louis in 1904, when the world was witness to the weirdest, most chaotic marathon of all time. It was so bizarre and ridiculous, it would be difficult for the most creative of fiction writers to come up with it. It was so bad, the marathon was almost thrown out entirely as an Olympic event. I cannot wait to share with you the strange, absurd chaos that was the 1904 Olympic marathon. Out of all the weird things we've gone over in this podcast so far, this one just might take the gold. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The first recorded Olympic Games were held at Olympia in the Greek city-state of Elis in 776 BCE. Although by then, the Games were probably already somewhere around 500 years old. They were held every four years during a huge religious festival honoring Zeus, though there were over 70 different altars where you could sacrifice to any of the many other gods in the Greek pantheon if you wanted to. It would be hard to exaggerate how important the ancient Olympic Games were for the ancient Greeks. According to Paul Christensen, professor of ancient Greek history at Dartmouth College, the games were so important that when the Persians invaded Greece in the summer of 480 BCE, many of the Greek city-states agreed they would put together an allied army to face the invading army of Xerxes I, but had a difficult time doing so because so many people wanted to go to the Olympics instead. They ended up having to delay putting an army together, Obviously, it all still worked out for the Greeks after their decisive victory at the naval battle of Salamis. By the 5th century BCE, the games lasted a full five days, with at least 40,000 spectators cramming into the stadium every day, and even more packing the streets to buy and sell wares or display their crafts. According to Christensen, painters, artists of all kinds, and orators, anyone looking for an audience, used the games and festival as an opportunity to showcase their skills. The ancient Olympic Stadium itself was refurbished several times over the centuries. 
With every renovation, the length of the track was kept at the same 600 feet, or a little over 192 meters. There are more than a few stories as to why this measurement was kept so consistent, including my favorite, which is a legend saying that 600 feet was the distance Hercules could run on a single breath. Over the centuries, the Olympic Games saw many different events, including boxing, chariot racing, javelin throwing, wrestling, and the famed Pankration. I'm only 30% sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, even though I googled it. This sport combined wrestling and boxing, sort of an ancient MMA. The athletes engaging in this event were covered in oil and only had to follow two rules. No biting and no gouging. They also competed completely naked, though this wasn't specific only to the pancration. All athletes competed naked. Women were not allowed to compete in the games. Shocker, I know. Women weren't even allowed to attend the games due to a no-girls-allowed type of rule, which was typical in ancient Greek society. For more on the roles of women in ancient Greek culture, the series on Olympias goes much more in-depth. Although women were not allowed to compete or spectate, according to the Olympic Games' own website, there was one loophole. Chariot owners, not the riders, were declared champion when a chariot race was won, and anyone could own a chariot. A woman named Kiniska, daughter of a Spartan king, cleverly took advantage of this rule and claimed victory wreaths in the chariot event in both 396 and 392 BCE. The ancient games showcased centuries of competition, festivities, and religious tradition until Theodosius outlawed them in 393 CE. It would be 1,500 years before the games were celebrated once again. With the European Renaissance came a fascination with ancient Greek culture, and during the 18th and 19th centuries, informal games and festivals dubbed the Olympics were held in various countries. But it wasn't until 1892 that the idea of an official, recognized International Olympic Games was seriously proposed. French Baron Pierre de Coubertin suggested the Olympic Games be revived as an international competition to occur every four years. Two years later, in 1894, at a conference on international sport that took place in Paris, 79 delegates from nine different countries agreed to his proposal. Shortly afterwards, the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, was formed, and the first modern Olympic Games were played in Athens, Greece, in 1896. Thirteen countries and 280 athletes participated. In contrast, at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics that took place this last summer in 2021, there were 11,417 competitors, 206 teams, and 339 events. By 1900, women were included in the Games. In 1924, the Winter Olympic Games were held for the first time in Chamonix, France. The United States hosted the Olympics for the first time in 1904. The International Olympic Committee considered Philadelphia and New York before awarding the Games to Chicago. But nothing about the 1904 Olympics was going to be easy. So shortly after Chicago was chosen, the IOC ran into their first problem. Made me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. 
The 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition, also called the World's Fair, was coming to St. Louis, Missouri, and it was gonna be huge. According to the Missouri Historical Society, nearly 1,500 buildings were erected on over 1,200 acres of what had been a woodland park. The fair would last for seven months and showcase the latest advancements in technology, art, pop culture, science, agriculture, entertainment, you name it. There was a circus, a 265-foot observation wheel for a bird's-eye view, dinosaur skeletons, an underground boat ride that sailed you through a labyrinth of underground passages, some fancy new thingamajig called an x-ray machine, a water slide for elephants, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Exhibits from 50 different countries and 43 of the then 45 states were showcased. The festival hall had a seating capacity of 3,500, which would have been far too small for the 200,000 people who showed up on opening day. By the time the fair closed on December 1st, 1904, almost 20 million people had made their way through the gates. But despite all the lights and wonders and innovation, the 1904 World's Fair was not perfect. There were some exhibits that today would be shocking, and even in 1904, appalled more than its fair share of people. The World's Fair was called the Louisiana Purchase Exposition because it was celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the United States' acquisition of the Louisiana Territory from Napoleonic France. This purchase added 828,000 square miles to the country. It was a big part of the United States' expansion westward. The Fair Bulletin said this, and I'm quoting, The heroes of Homer's Iliad were engaged in petty achievements when compared to the work of the men who wrestled a vast wilderness from savages and wild beasts and made it the seat of 20 great commonwealths in a single century. Unquote. So you can probably guess where this is going. The fair showcased something called the Anthropology Days, and it was controversial even then. Basically, this consisted of the fair's management recruiting what they called savages from several of the international villages. Natives, tribespeople, anyone who was not white engaged in a two-day competition that pitted one culture against another in sports they had never played before, including mudslinging and having to climb up a greased pole, all for white audiences. This idea was hatched by James E. Sullivan, head of the Physical Culture Department for the World's Fair, and the guy ultimately responsible for the Olympic marathon disaster that was to come. His idea was to showcase the athletic inferiority of non-white peoples and the physical superiority of white Americans. I cringed just saying that. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch ran this story with the headline, Barbarians Meet in Athletic Games. Pierre de Coubertin, the French baron who proposed reviving the Olympics, and by then the president of the IOC, called it an outrageous charade. And it was. Despite the controversy of the anthropology games, the St. Louis World's Fair was hugely successful, and the IOC knew that if they held the Olympics in Chicago, attendance would be hindered by the millions of people making their way to the fair instead. 
the World Fair's organizers wanted to host the Olympics. In an attempt to throw the Chicago Olympics off the rails, fair organizers scheduled the Amateur Athletic Union to hold their 1904 track and field championships during the fair. Faced now with the possibility of poorly attended games and a conflicting athletic competition, IOC President Pierre de Coubertin reluctantly agreed to move the games to St. Louis. Coubertin would not attend. In fact, quite a few countries would not attend. The cost and time it took to travel to St. Louis was a factor, and in the end, only 12 countries showed up. 651 athletes would compete, and over 500 of them would be from the U.S. I've seen different numbers on exactly how many athletes there were, all in the 600s, but the 651 comes from the Olympics' official website, so I went with that. Around half of all foreign athletes were from Canada, making the 1904 Olympics primarily a North American event. The games would be lost to a great extent in the excitement and confusion of the fair. It was even difficult to tell which events were Olympic events and which were part of the fair, because fair organizers began confusing everyone by referring to all athletic events as Olympics. The 1904 Olympic Games would last over four and a half months, with its 95 events being spread out everywhere. Despite the disorganization and flurry of millions of people cramming into St. Louis over the months, there were some memorable takeaways. Gold, silver, and bronze medals were given out for the first time, and boxing made its Olympic debut. American gymnast George Acer would go on to win six medals, which is impressive in and of itself, but even more so because he did it with a left leg made of wood. But the most memorable event at the 1904 Olympics, the thing these games are remembered for, was the disaster, the disorder, the chaos of the marathon. For the first modern Olympic Games in 1896, which took place in Athens, Greece, the organizers were looking for an event that would highlight the ancient origins of the Olympics. The legend of Pheidippides was proposed. You've probably heard this story before. Legend goes that in 490 BCE, when the Athenians defeated the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, a man named Pheidippides ran the entire way back to Athens to proclaim word of the epic victory. After he shouted the exciting news of the decisive victory, he immediately dropped dead. Although the marathon was never an ancient Olympic event, and the story of Pheidippides may not even be true, organizers loved the way the legend bridged the ancient and modern, so the marathon, as we know it today, was born and made its debut at the first modern Olympic Games. It wasn't until 1921 that the official distance became today's 26.2 miles. In 1896, it was 24.85 miles, but it was always longer than most of us will ever run in one go. I don't think I've ever even walked that far in one go. The Olympic Marathon of 1904 was set to be a signature event it drew a wide array of competitors. 
Some were experienced marathoners, and some had never run a marathon before in their lives. Forty runners signed up. Eight of them didn't run. They either didn't show up or decided to walk away for one reason or another before the race started. So although 40 runners are listed on the official roster for the 1904 Games, most sources only cite there being 32 competitors because that's how many actually ran in the race. Out of the 32 who would run, only 14 would finish, and one would be disqualified. Some of the runners were doomed from the start, because if you don't train for running a marathon, finishing is unlikely. But even some of the experienced marathoners wouldn't finish this race. That's because the nearly 25-mile route for this particular run was nothing short of miserable. It was designed by James E. Sullivan, the same guy responsible for the horrid anthropology days. Sullivan didn't believe in giving athletes water while they were running marathons, and he decided to use these runners and this race as an opportunity to conduct an experiment in order to prove his theory. He wanted to test the effects of purposeful dehydration, so he limited the availability of water during the race. He believed that eating or drinking during a long-distance athletic event would upset the stomach. It is true that you can do damage to your cells by drinking too much water. It's called hyponatremia and occurs when you drink so much water that you drop the sodium levels outside of your cells by a dangerous amount. However, this doesn't mean you should abstain from water entirely. That could also be dangerous. According to Dr. James Muntz, internal medicine service chief with the Methodist Hospital in Houston, you should drink about one cup of fluid every 20 minutes during a marathon. For Sullivan, the 1904 marathoners were the lab rats, and the route was the maze. Only there would be no rewarding piece of cheese at the end of it. According to an article from Runner's World, there was only one water station on the entire 1904 course near mile 12. An article from the Smithsonian states there were two, a water tower near mile 6 and a road well at mile 12. Neither scenario provided athletes with the amount of water they would need to stay hydrated, especially since the race was set to occur during the hottest part of the day, with temperatures soaring into the 90s Fahrenheit, or 30s, Celsius. The poorly planned route would prove too grueling even for the world's most experienced marathon runners, the runners were a mixed bag when it came to experience. There was John Lorden, the 1903 Boston Marathon champ. He had been born in Ireland, but was running for the U.S. There was Fred Lors, an American. He'd finished in the top five at the previous two Boston marathons. He was a bricklayer by trade and had to do all of his training at night because of his day job. Albert Corey from Chicago, a slaughterhouse worker, would run for the U.S., though he was born in France. There was Thomas Hicks, another American. He had come in second, just behind Lorden at the Boston Marathon. Hicks was a professional clown, though he took the race quite seriously. There were several firsts in this race. Frank Pierce of the Seneca Nation would run, becoming the first Native American to compete in the Olympics. Two more firsts were Len Tonyane and Jan Mashiani. They were members of South Africa's Tswana tribe, Boer War veterans, and the first black athletes to represent South Africa in the Olympic Games. 
They were the only black athletes to represent South Africa until the end of apartheid, almost 90 years later. Although neither had ever run a marathon, both would finish, which is incredibly impressive given that some of the most experienced athletes on the ticket who trained specifically for marathons would not. The first Cuban to run an Olympic marathon would take part in this race as well. His name was Felix Carbajal. He was a mail carrier by trade and had raised money to fund his Olympic dream by running throughout Cuba, even once trekking the entire length of the island. He was five feet tall and full of determination. He'd had a haphazard journey to the starting line. After he arrived in the U.S., he lost all his money on a dice game in New Orleans. He had to hitchhike the entire way to St. Louis, which was nearly 680 miles, or 1,100 kilometers. Since he'd lost his funds, he had to race in his dress clothes, the only outfit he had left. He showed up to the starting line in a billowing long-sleeved white shirt, dark dress pants, a beret, and street shoes. One of the other competitors, not wanting Felix to have to run 25 miles in humid 90-degree heat in dark dress pants, used a pair of scissors to cut his pants into shorts. On August 30th, at 3.03 p.m., 32 runners lined up for the 1904 marathon. The starting pistol was fired. And the athletes were off. Most of them would not make it to the finish line. The course began on the Francis Olympic Field before it meandered out onto dirt roads marked with red flags to guide the runners along their route. There were seven large hills ranging from 100 to 300 feet, or 30 to 90 meters, and some of them had relentlessly long ascents. Footing was perilous in places, and the runners were not alone on the road. They were constantly dodging traffic, trains, trolleys, people, and dogs. The dust kicked up from vehicles was constantly billowing out into the air, making it difficult to breathe at times, and causing the runners to go into fits of coughing. The dust was inches thick on the road in places, making the terrain even more difficult. The runners were followed by journalists, event officials, and support teams, all contributing to the heavy dust clouds in the air. After the starting pistol was fired, Lors, bricklayer by day, runner by night, led the pack at the start, but was overtaken by Thomas Hicks, professional clown, by the end of the first mile. By mile six, U.S. athlete Arthur Newton took the lead. He'd won bronze in the steeplechase the day before. Felix Carvajal, running for Cuba, was keeping a steady pace, though the margin between him and the lead was growing because he kept stopping to chat with spectators. By mile 10, Lors the bricklayer began experiencing a bad bout of cramping. This is not surprising, because by this point in the race, the runners were experiencing the negative effects of Sullivan's experiment in purposeful dehydration. Deciding he didn't want to run through the cramping, Lors flagged down a car, got inside, and spent the next 11 miles of the race enjoying the breeze as his ride drove him towards the finish line. Felix Carvajal now decided he needed a snack. Some accounts place him in an apple orchard where he began eating fruit from the trees that had gone sour. One of the journalists following the runners said they saw Carvajal conversing with spectators who were carrying peaches. 
After asking for some, the spectators denied to give Carvajal any peaches. So he quickly and playfully swiped a couple from them anyway, and took off down the road, snacking on peaches. Shortly afterwards, Carvajal began to suffer from a stomach ache. Maybe it was the peaches, the bad apples, the dust, or the severe dehydration setting in. Whatever the cause, Carvajal decided at this point to lay down and take a nap. Around this same time, Hicks the professional clown was suffering from severe thirst. He begged his handlers for some water, but they refused him any. Instead, they used a wet sponge to give his face and shoulders a sponge bath, hoping this would help alleviate his thirst. It did not. At mile 12, the athletes were finally able to drink some much-needed water. Halfway through the race, Samuel Meller, winner of the 1902 Boston Marathon, took the lead. However, by mile 16, he began experiencing cramping so severe he felt he couldn't continue. He also thought he was lost and possibly running in the wrong direction. He was going the right way, but the frustration and the pain proved too much, and Meller, one of the runners predicted to win the race, quit. After Meller withdrew from the race, Hicks the Clown took the lead, followed by Newton. In front of both of them, on the track, Lors continued to enjoy his car ride. Somewhere in the middle of all these happenings, Felix Carvajal awoke from his nap, decided he felt better enough to give it another go, and continued on in the race. At mile 19, William Garcia, a runner from San Francisco, was in fourth place. But at the horror of the onlookers, he began to cough up blood and collapsed. Breathing in the dust clouds, the heat, and the dehydration had all taken their toll. He was taken to a nearby hospital where he had to undergo surgery because the dust had coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. If he hadn't been taken to the hospital as soon as he had been, it's speculated that he probably would have died from the internal damage. Around this time, John Lorden, another American athlete, began vomiting and physically couldn't continue the race. By now, the horrendous conditions had taken out quite a few of the runners. Somewhere along the route, South African athlete Len Tanyane was chased off the course by wild dogs. It's insane all of this happened during the course of one race, and it's not over. Around mile 20, Fred Lors decided to get out of the car he was riding in and finish the last few miles on foot. He had ridden in the car for 11 miles, so was feeling quite confident and refreshed. He ran the rest of the way and was the first to cross the finish line since he had spent half the race in a car. Though he certainly didn't bother telling anyone that. When he ran across the finish line, the audience began excitedly shouting that an American had won. Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of then-President Theodore Roosevelt, placed a victory wreath on Lors's head. She was just about to place the gold medal around his neck when someone shouted for her to stop. When the audience found out he'd spent half the race in a car, the cheers turned to boos. After he'd been found out, Lors said he'd only finished as a joke. He claimed he wasn't really intending on accepting the honor. Seems like he kind of could have voiced that sooner, though. 
Lors received a lifetime ban, and on the Olympics' official website, which has a list of every runner who competed at this race, next to his name is listed the phrase, did not finish. Back in the race, Hicks the Clown was now in the lead, but was suffering from severe dehydration. Somewhere around seven miles from the finish line, his handlers knew they had to do something for Hicks if they wanted him to finish. So they decided to make history by inciting the first recorded instance of an athlete using performance-enhancing drugs at the Olympics. The drug they chose to give their athlete was strychnine sulfate. If you're thinking, why does strychnine sulfate sound familiar? It's because it's used in rat poison. They mixed a milligram of strychnine with two egg whites and had him wash the whole thing down with brandy in what must have been the worst-tasting sports drink of all time. I wonder if they were thinking all of this could have been avoided if they had just given him more water throughout the race. Though strychnine is absolutely a deadly poison in larger amounts, it was used in small doses at the time as a stimulant. Hicks' handlers weren't trying to kill their athlete, they were trying to give him a bit of a kick. At this time, there were no rules barring performance-enhancing drugs from the Olympics. At some point, South Africa's Len Tanyane was able to shake off the pack of wild dogs pursuing him and was back on track. Cuba's Felix Carvajal was also making better time now and shortening the distance between himself and the leaders. Hicks was still in the lead, but the effects of his egg whites, brandy, and strychnine concoction was wearing off, and he began to slow down. At a hill two miles from the finish line, his run slowed to a walk. He began to hallucinate, thinking the finish line was still 20 miles out. So his handlers decided to give him more strychnine. This helped just enough, though the hicks the audience saw trudging towards the finish line was barely hanging on. His handlers had to help keep him from falling over at times, and there is a surviving photo of this. There's a picture of him with a handler on each side, and he looks ready to keel over at any moment. Hicks heard Lors had been disqualified, and that helped motivate him back into a trot. Or maybe it was the strychnine. He was tired, he was in pain, he was a wreck, but he knew then he just might win this thing. Charles Lucas, one of the race officials who watched Hicks run his last two miles, wrote of him, quote, Hicks was running mechanically, like a well-oiled piece of machinery. His eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his face and skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights, well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff, unquote. Tom Hicks, exhausted yet victorious, crossed the finish line at 3 hours, 28 minutes, and 58 seconds. That's the slowest winning marathon time in the history of the Olympics. Four doctors treated Hicks for an hour before he was well enough to leave the field. He lost 8 pounds during the race. French-American Albert Corey from Chicago crossed the finish line six minutes after Hicks, securing himself a silver medal. Arthur Newton, the 1902 Boston champ and the prior day's third-place steeplechase medalist, pulled in for third place, earning him his second bronze medal in two days. 
After the first three runners crossed the finish line, no one bothered recording any of the other finishing times. Or if they did, they were lost. But we do know the order in which those who were able to finish, finished. Felix Carvajal of Cuba took fourth place, despite having taken a nap. Felix would continue to run marathons after this. He won third place the next year in the inaugural All-Western Marathon. After that, the Cuban government sent him to Greece to compete in a marathon there, but he disappeared somewhere in or around Italy. At that point, he was declared dead, and the government issued obituaries mourning his passing. Shortly after that, the very much still alive Felix Carvajal showed up in Havana, where he resumed racing. I think Felix Carvajal sounds like he may be one of the most interesting people of all time. South Africa's Len Tanyane finished ninth, even though he had never run a marathon before and had spent much of the time fleeing a pack of wild dogs. South Africa's other athlete, Jan Mashiani, came in 12th. It would take hours for the 14 competitors who managed to complete the race to trickle in and cross the finish line. The race was an obvious disaster. It had been poorly planned and it was dangerous. A newspaper called the Post-Dispatch labeled it a man-killing event. The marathon itself was soon in danger of being pulled entirely from the Olympics. Sullivan, the man responsible for this fiasco, jumped on the bandwagon to have the marathon discontinued, saying marathons were asking too much of human endurance. Seems like this was a way for him to deflect the poor route, conditions, and purposeful dehydration he was responsible for, and chalk it all up to the natural limitations of human endurance. The marathon would remain an event, however, and it continues to be part of the Olympics. Sullivan later wrote a book called The Olympic Games of 1904. In it, he defended his position on purposeful dehydration, urging athletes not to drink water during marathons. He also claimed the marathon proved his white supremacist theory that Caucasians were better at long-distance sports. I wonder how he would feel, knowing that the top 10 fastest marathon times ever recorded as of this episode were all achieved by African athletes. Sullivan also barred American women from participating in the 1908 London Olympics. Even for his own day, Sullivan was a douche. The 1904 Olympic marathon remains the weirdest race of all time. It had firsts, lasts, tragedies, and victory. The only good thing we can really say about it is that unlike the legend of Pheidippides that inspired the birth of the marathon, at least no one died. Thank you so much for listening today. This was one of the most fun episodes to research. It's one of those pieces of history that's just so full of color that it tells itself. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed sharing it with you. By the way, I want to say thanks to my newest patron, Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. Thank you for being so unsinkably awesome. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. 
If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious, and drink lots of water. Until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.